Yes. Well, um, good morning, class. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. <clears throat> I actually um, was at the uh, very front end of this church 20 years ago and uh, literally have prayed for this church for 20 years. And I was telling Keith, it's just this weekend has been wonderful for me just to have to go a little bit more in depth with people. And uh, so thanks for your hospitality. Robbie, right? Uh, this is going to be very interactive. I, I, I basically stopped preaching a couple of years ago. And, uh, and I preached for 50 plus years, but literally I don't want to ever preach again. I, I loved it. I don't want to do it anymore. What? But I, I love doing this. Um, in November, I, I got back. I went down to Brazil for uh, two weeks. And, uh, and I was actually very much at the front end of the, that church plant. About, that was about uh, three years ago they planted a church. And so and I, when I went down there, I, uh, I had been, I've been going down to Brazil for 20-plus years, and I've been going to Poland for 20-plus So those two countries were the countries that I've gone to the most. And... Uh, so uh, this is a this church in uh, Brazil has a, the, the founding pastor is a guy named Bernardo. It's it's a Korean Presbyterian church. And the pastor is Bernardo Cho, and he is just a remarkable guy. He wrote a book, and uh, you want to take you want to take notes on this. It's called the Plot of Salvation. It's, it's a stunning overview of the, of the scriptures. If you love the scriptures, you want to read this book. So. I'll check next time I'm here if you've read the book. So. <laughs> this is a book-reading church, right? So um, when I went down there, I said, you know, Bernardo is a remarkable teacher. I actually went to church there for a year by Zoom, and uh, it was, the, the message was translated, and... Uh, and so I heard, I basically heard the plot of salvation in sermon form for a year. And uh, so it, uh, it was wonderful. And uh, so I'm just simply very connected to it. But I went, when I went down there, I said, listen, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to preach and I don't want to be a teacher. You have a teacher. You have one of the best teachers I've ever heard here. I said, let me be something different. And I asked him if I could just be like a spiritual grandfather and, uh, and I, they accepted me that way. I, I'd like to make the same appeal to you. Let me just be like a, a grandfather. And, uh, and, you know, with my, I have nine grandkids. And, uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not doing the main uh, shaping of their lives anymore. Uh, and I never did. But, um, but as a grandfather, I just sit down and talk with them about whatever's going on. And, we, and so I just like sitting down with them and talking. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's very easy I mean, the whole the whole uh, pressure of being of shaping their lives as a parent is not there at all. So, so I don't feel any uh, need to uh, to teach you uh, or to preach at you. Keith can do it. He's good. Um, uh, but I, I would I just would love to talk to you and just interactively relate to the scriptures with you. You know, when I when I think of this church. And when I was the president of the ARC, there were two things that I really liked about this church. One was that it was, um, 
It was the best outreach church in the ARC. Like the stuff you did at Wright State, it was way beyond what any other church was doing in outreach in the ARC. So number one, it was really good. That the second thing was, I think this, this church was the most scripturally astute church in the ARC. So scripturally and, and outreach, this was like the, uh, the, the top of the heap to me. So, so I feel very uh, confident in doing this with you this morning. Of, uh, of just doing a Bible study. So, Josiah, are you going to put up these scriptures? Can you put up the Hebrews one? I'll take it by faith. Okay. What? Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. I can see it. I'm 74. I'm not 84, so... So I want you to, uh, I have been studying the place of suffering in the life of, of a believer for really about three or four years. And I, I, I think it's just a, a crucial understanding of what it means to, uh, how suffering actually promotes our growth. And uh, I told Keith I was going to talk about suffering, and he said, well, that's going to be just joyful, isn't it? I said, well, <laughs> what? Yeah, um, but I, but this scripture has been extremely meaningful to me. So I just, what I'd like to do is uh, go through this scripture and just ask you a bunch of questions. So I, I want you to just be, feel free to uh, answer. You don't need to raise, well, you can raise your hand if you want, but, um, and ask questions. <clears throat> so um, uh, there, were, there were two books of the Bible that I actually wrote commentaries on. Hebrews was one. And Second Corinthians was one, and I mean, and I would say these are not uh, great commentaries, but they're just my perspective on what's going on in these scriptures. And uh, so, uh, so let's uh, read this. I'll read it, and then I have a couple of questions for you right away. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. First of all, where, where, are we, where are we talking about within the scriptures? What's, where's, where are these prayers taking place? What? They are on earth. We're on earth. This is probably the Gethsemane. Uh, but, but here's my question. It says, he prayed to him who could save him from death, and he was heard. My question is, was he? Was he saved from death? Tell me how. How was he saved from death? He was raised from death. But, but the Father did not save him from the cross. And of course, his whole perspective was, not my will, but thine be done, right? So that was uh, crucial for him and for the Father. But, but I think a lot of people read this and they just get confused right away. It's like, he was heard, but then he actually wasn't saved from death. So, um, say what? Yes, that's it, exactly, right. But it's not clear in the scripture, is it? And then this is the scripture that really got me. It says, although he was a, he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And, uh, and being made perfect, he became the um, source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Can you go back a second? Um, 
I'm going to talk about the suffering that, that uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. Although he was a son, he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So um, talk to me about this. How did Jesus learn obedience through what he suffered? What's the, what's the context for this? Come on, you astute Bible scholars, talk to me. <laughs> How, how did he suffer? They had to go to the cross willingly, otherwise it would have been effective. Okay, before he went to the cross, did he suffer? Yes. Yes. Okay, tell me how he suffered before he went to the cross. Well, for one thing, he was objective for his entire hometown. It's like it's like any of us being run out of Dayton. He what? For one thing, he was he was exiled from his hometown. It'd almost be like any of us being run out of Dayton. Right. Okay, let me ask a backup question. A backstory question. Um, where did Jesus come from? No, originally. Who said that? I can't actually hear you very well. Okay. No, no, I'm not. That's what I want. Okay. What kind of life did he have in heaven? A good one. Very good. You are really Bible scholars here. He had a good one. Okay, describe his life in heaven for me. Describe it. A perfect peace amongst the Trinity. Okay. He was, he was with the Father. He was with the Holy Spirit. And he was with uh, angels and archangels. It was going well, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the, and what was the uh, original uh, expression of Jesus to this earth? In John chapter 1. And what happened there? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and what else? He was in the beginning with God. And what else? He created everything. And without him? Nothing was created. Okay. This is uh, who he was. He's with the Father, the Spirit, the angels, and the archangels, and he has created the earth. And, and at some point then, um, however this happened in eternity, Josiah, can you put up Philippians 2? So Paul talks about uh, the incarnation, and he's, he puts it this way. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in, a, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, um, so... The, the word they actually use in the Greek is the word kenosis. It says that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. Now, he didn't fully empty himself of all of his divinity because he was fully God and fully man, right, you theologians? Fully God, fully man his entire life. And, uh, no, not his entire life. Well, fully man when he was born. But when he actually did become human, where did he reside when he first became human? He did. He, he was residing in a womb. So, so the one who made heaven and earth and everything in it now was, had became like an embryo in a womb. I mean, think of it. He's living with angels and archangels. Now his residence is in the womb of a, of a human being, being made into a human being. And uh, so at some point then, uh, at some point then his suffering begins. I, I think the suffering... Of, of the Son of God 
begins right there as, a, as an embryo. And, uh, but at some point then, you, you know the passage where, uh, where uh, Mary and Joseph go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Yeah. There's this journey. This pregnant woman travels. I, forget, I think it's 60-some um, miles. But they travel this uh, journey on a, probably on a donkey. And, uh, and then they come to Bethlehem. You know the story, right? No room in the end, but he, uh, but he was actually born. And uh, well, to talk to me about his birth. What happened in his birth that's unique? Who who attended his birth? Shepherds. Okay, uh, what what were shepherds in in the in the caste system of Israel? The lowest of the lowest. Yeah, right along with fishermen, shepherds and fishermen were just the scum of the earth at that point, and uh, that's who that's who. Who gets the first uh, baby announcement are shepherds. And uh, so they come in, and he's in this, uh, he's kind of, I think he's probably in a cave, they say a stable. But at any rate, leaving, uh, leaving heaven and the angels and archangels, he now is in Bethlehem with these two human beings and these shepherds. And, uh, and, and though he wasn't experiencing it so much humanly, uh, uh, there was a, a kind of suffering that was going on for him. A lot of people want to know, want to know how much. Did, when did Jesus know that he was the Son of God? Before time began. When he was a baby, did he know he was the Son of God? Well, he was eternally God. He was eternally God. Did he know it? John the Baptist knew it. Then. This is a, a, a great scripture against abortion, isn't it? Yes. But uh, I, I really don't want to get into this. This is too complicated to get into. But <laughs> honestly, when did Jesus know he was the son of God humanly? And, uh, but at any rate, what I want to get into is that uh, from his birth, the one who made everything is, uh, goes from Bethlehem, and then where did he go from Be- after Bethlehem? From where did he go? Because he's a refugee to Egypt, and uh, so that was also not a easy little journey from Bethlehem to Egypt. But then finally, uh, Herod is out of the picture. He goes back, and then where does he reside after he goes back to Israel? Talk to me about Nazareth. Right. It's just. It's, it's in the worst district of Israel. It's the worst town in the worst district. That's, that's where God chooses to have his, <clears throat> the Son of God who made everything is going to be raised in Nazareth. And uh, Now, I find this fascinating, that this is God's will for his son, his beloved son, who's going to be raised in the worst, the worst city and the worst district of Israel. Let's, let's do it there. And uh, <clears throat> So as a little boy then... Uh, his parents take him down to Jerusalem for the feast. Tell me what happens at that feast. Mm-hmm. Hmm? So once they leave, Jesus was still found up at the temple three days later after the whole service. What's the feast? Do you remember? Uh, feast of Weeks. I, I think it's uh, Tabernacles. It's tabernacles. Yeah. Sometimes called booths. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, they leave, and they leave him behind. They finally find him after, what, three, four days? Mm-hmm. 
Three days. And uh, what's his response to them when they're frustrated with him? <clears throat> so now we know now he really does know who he is, right? Mm-hmm. As the son of God. He talks to his human parents and says, don't you understand who I am? Of course, now Mary does understand who he is. Joseph understands too because he's, he's had enough dreams to figure out who he is. And, uh, but it's... Um, <clears throat> But I, what I want to just press to you is this, this whole understanding of suffering is uh, now the Son of God for, uh, for 30 years wakes up every morning in this town of Nazareth and, um, and, and, uh, and this is, I would say this is human suffering. And I would, I would put it to you this way. I would say to be human is to suffer. That the very nature of being human is to suffer. And uh, now it's... I mean, we're not, we're not in suffering pain every minute of the day, but there's a suffering that goes on. Um, I was thinking of the very first retreat I ever went on to after I became a Christian in 19, 1970 was in Spencer Lake, Wisconsin. And uh, the main speaker of that, the only speaker in that retreat was a guy named Russell Cox. And, he, and I liked my, the pastor in the Assembly of God. His name was Sam Peterson. And I just loved his preaching and... Uh, but when we got to this retreat, Russell Cox spoke the first night, and it was absolutely stunning to me how incredible he was as a speaker, how much he knew of the scriptures. And uh, he went on for like an hour and a half, and he could have gone on for four hours, and I would, or, or longer, as far as I was concerned. But at one point, at one point in the next day, he, talk, he was talking about, um, I think, um, the challenge of life. I, I don't know exactly what it was. But he said, he said, the greatest burden of my life, I'll never forget this statement, he said, the, the greatest burden of my life is, is Russell Cox. And, uh, and I thought, what? You're great, man. You're, you can't. But he, what, he, what he was saying was this, that, that dealing with me is in, in itself a kind of suffering. And uh, because of my own, my own brokenness, my own dysfunction, my, my frustrations in life. And, uh, and there is a suffering in being uh, Ned Berube, uh, Russell Cox, or Greg Weiss, or Sidney Osborne, there's a suffering in just being who you are and kind of dealing with your emotions, with your intellect, and with, uh, with your sense of purpose and direction in life. There's a suffering that you have to deal with. And, uh, because because the, kind, the thing that goes on for me all the time is this. Um, I am always wanting to be, first, I want to be ascendant. I want to be the one. And uh, I'm, I'm struggling to actually assert myself constantly. And so when Jesus says this, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Deny himself. Now, I not you just think about that for a minute. How hard is it for you to deny yourself? Talk to me about this for a minute. Let's be interactive, you scholars. It is, but, it's, but, that's, the, but that's the call. So you come to Jesus... And now the first thing he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You've got to learn to say no to you. By it, by, all by itself, there's a point of suffering in that that I think we've got to get used to. We have to embrace that suffering. You have to um, say no to you, and you have to follow me. You have to, you have to understand that you are not alone in your life anymore. There's another that's now in your life that's leading your life. And you've got to say, now I want you to think about just going through a day, you are constantly in touch with you, what you want, what you feel, where you want to go, what you want to eat, where you want, and all of that. 
And now he's saying, you know what? I want you to begin to say no to you and say yes to me and, and, and ask me where you, I want you to go, where I want, what I want you to do. Was that hard for any of you? Was it? No, honestly. Think back. That was, to me, that was stunning. I remember, I remember when I first read that, I thought, this is, um, this is going to be a challenge. And you know what? It has been a challenge to, uh, to say no to me. But, 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 but I think growing up um, as a believer, that has got to be established well in our lives, that we learn how to say no to me and, and yes and, and appeal to him all day long, to continually be looking to him my, 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 my constant prayer in life is help um, for almost everything. I'm, looking, I'm asking for help. You know, after I had my, my stroke, I actually did need a lot of physical help. But, not, but I have learned to ask for way more than physical help. I mean, in every conversation I'm in, I'm trying to, I'm looking for help to, um, uh, to understand where, where he wants me to be in this conversation. So my life verse, my the life verse for me is John twelve twenty six, which is, Jesus says this, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And uh, for me, it, com- it comes out this way. Uh, if, if I'm going to serve him, the way I serve him is to follow him and to actually be where he is. So even like all, all um, throughout this weekend, we've been in conversations, and I've been trying to apply live by that scripture. I, so I've asked the Lord constantly, where are you? Like, we met with uh, the Paramiles. Keith and I met with the Paramiles yesterday at Panera's. It was really good food, thank you. And, uh, but um, but I, was, I was asking that question multiple times. I was, I was saying, where are you? And do you want me to share anything? And uh, most often he's saying no to me, um, really. Uh, but I, mean, I have a lot to share, but so often I'm hearing no, and... Uh, but, I, but my, my, my call in life is not to assert myself. My call is to follow him. And, uh, but, but, you know, that, that, that whole dynamic is a, is a kind of suffering that goes on. To want to say no and to stop and to not assert myself. That's my personality is to assert myself. And, uh, so let me go back to the scripture. Can we go back to the Hebrew scripture? It says he learned obedience uh, by what he suffered and he became perfect. I'm sorry. He became the source of eternal salvation. Okay. So this is what, it, what I want to simply put to you. Jesus learned obedience in his, in his humanness. In his divinity, of course, he was obedient. But in his humanness, he was learning obedience and learning how to follow the Father and it says he, be, uh, he became, uh, i got to go back a bit, I'm sorry. Okay, he learned obedience to what he suffered. And being made perfect. The, the word being made perfect, it really means to be, to, to be growing up, to be, to be matured. Now, I'm very simply I'm saying this to you, that um, to, actually, um, to actually grow up into what God has called you to be, you're going to learn obedience by what you suffer. The suffering of being you, the suffering of being Russell Cox, um, that, uh, that's going to perfect you. But then beyond, beyond you, there, is, uh, there are all these relationships in your life 
that are also going to cause you to suffer. Keith was referring to his wife the other day. I think it's kind of like we married the same woman. They have the same name, but they're very much alike. And uh, my wife is a an amazing woman. She um, but she has a high, high commitment to beauty and order, and I don't. And. Uh, <laughs> So I think Keith mentioned this, but on our counter in our, in our kitchen, uh, where the salt and pepper shaker is, is very important to my wife. <laughs> now, this is going to make her sound smallish. It's not. But she cares about how this looks. You, you cannot imagine how little I care about how anything looks. <laughs> but, but I have had to learn how to, because I love her, and I, how to not roll my eyes and how to not um, sigh and make a face, um, because she is committed to that. I have had to learn how to also be committed to that. And, uh, but it's a, personally, it's a kind of suffering, and, uh, but, it's, but it's a suffering of love that's occurring at that point, as I yield to uh, her in that. And, uh, now, and, you know, honestly, I deeply appreciate it. I love it, in fact, because our, our place looks wonderful. I mean, and she is a gardener, and a, um, uh, we, have a, we now live uh, with my oldest daughter, and um, we live below in an apartment below, and we have a little patio outside. My wife hates it that, um, that the uh, shovels are out there, and the shovels create a little bit of a rust uh, on the patio. She hates that rust on the patio. Uh, and I said, Sue, it's a patio, you know, it's like, and I'm thinking, you shouldn't care about that. But you know what? She does. And uh, so part of my commitment then becomes, I will actually try to get the rust off the patio without having a bad attitude about it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but here's the point of it. Here's what I'm getting after. To, to live with Sue is, uh, is uh, to suffer. And she under, she, don't, don't take offense for her. She understands what I'm saying in this. And she would say, to live with you is suffering. <laughs> And, and, and I realize I have produced a lot of suffering for her. But here's the point. We, in our suffering, we are growing up and, um, and really learning how to uh, live one life together. But to live one life together is all about suffering. And um, so in this, in this body, there's all kinds of relationships, right? But to, to grow together, you have to learn how to yield to one another, how to actually wash each other's feet. And all of that is a kind of suffering that takes place. But it's a, it's a wonderful, important, beautiful suffering that creates the image of God and grace Christian fellowship. It's, um, but this is what the writer is saying in Hebrews. He's saying, and being made perfect, uh, Jesus became a source of eternal salvation. And, what, and very simply what I'm wanting to share with you is this. In your suffering and in the way that you are perfected, the whole goal of God is is to perfect you and to make you a source. Now, you're not a source of eternal, eternal salvation. That's Jesus. But you are a source of grace and a source of life to others that's going to be produced in you as you learn you know, obedience through your suffering. Uh, you become a source. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit makes you into a, a source for others. That really is. Now, talk to me about that. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Talk to me about it. <laughs> Do you see the Lord doing that in you? I didn't hear you. Yeah, it's hard to see from yourself sometimes. 
the Lord has brought me life. That's true. What's your name? Uh, John Frederick. John Frederick? John Bradbury. Brad. Bradbury. Yes. Thanks, John. Do you see do you see how your suffering has produced uh, has perfected you? One of the, uh, uh, I've, I've had two strokes now. One, one of them took away my left peripheral vision. The other one really did some damage to me. So I, I can't hardly use this hand anymore. But this has been utterly instructive to me. I'm not trying to appear heroic here. I'm not. But it has taught me something about um, suffering that produces uh, a perfection. Uh, so before I, um, before I had the stroke, I was, you know, I was, traveling everywhere in the world and preaching, teaching, leading, whatever. And, uh, but after I had the stroke, I, I was pressed further and further into prayer. And, uh, and prayer has now become the central call of my life. And uh, before, before this, I mean, I prayed all through, um, all through, all through my uh, ministry and so forth. But, but, but what has happened here in the stroke is something has happened now for me where that has opened up to me in a way that has been utterly expansive. Um, and it's been a great gift. Um, so, so in some ways, the suffering has produced, has perfected something in me that has been like a great gift. And uh, so I actually wanted to finish this um, Hebrews. Uh, uh, and he says this. Uh, he says, about this we have much to say. And this is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Do you ever get to that place you have become dull of hearing? Yes. The answer is yes, you have. <laughs> and uh, there's a periodic dullness that we, uh, I think we all experience. And this is what the writer is saying. You become dull of hearing, for, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, or he could have said you ought to be sources to others. You ought to be teachers. You need, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And I think this is what goes on. In our life, there are places where we um, simply, we grow dull, and we begin to miss it, and we begin to drift. And, uh, and oftentimes what, what knocks us out of that drift is a kind of suffering that takes place, uh, kind of a, an obstruction that takes place in our life where we get jolted back into uh, seeking God again. But this is what the, the writer was saying. You need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And so he says, you need milk, not solid food. And every time I read this, I think of uh, our first daughter, Renee, who we now live with. When we were feeding her, when she was just weaned from her mother's breast, um, I remember I was the one who was feeding her pablum. You know, and when you feed her, you feed, you know what pablum is? There you go. <laughs> and it was, but it was very watery. It was hardly any substance whatsoever. And so, so the graduation was from watery pablum to a little thicker pablum to a little thicker pablum. And, uh, and it was, uh, I will never forget, though, the point at which with a little bit of a thicker pablum, we, in, we also inserted a little piece of grape uh, and, uh, on the spoon, put it into her mouth, and she li literally, the, the, the grape came right out. She just spit it right out. It's like, I'm not doing that. I, I do pablum. I don't do grapes. And... Uh, and so it was, I forget how many times we inserted that grape into her mouth before she actually took it. And of course, at a certain point, she takes the grape, then she, we increase the amount of things she could take. But, the, but here's, what, here's what this writer is saying. You need, uh, you, need, you, need, you need the breast again. You need milk. You can't handle even thick pablum. 
you, you become so dull, you, you have lost the capacity to actually ingest nourishment into your life, and you have, you, you've lost it. And so, but here's what he says. Um, he says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And I, what I want to press you, and I think, as I said, I think this, is, this church is very healthy this way, but I want to press you toward, toward, toward skill in the word of righteousness. This is, this, is the, this is the food of your life. You've got to grow continuously in, in skill in the word of righteousness. And uh, he says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So this is the, uh, the thing I want to press you this morning, maybe the main thing of your suffering. You need constant practice and skill in the word of righteousness to actually grow and, uh, and be perfected so that you can become a source to other people. Uh, and, it's, and I'm not talking about um, just Bible knowledge and uh, so I'm talking about that word actually shaping your life and where, where, you have, where you're encountering uh, the Holy Spirit and his word is actually shaping your life and, uh, and leading you. And uh, um, I was, uh, I, when I was a kid, I played a lot of baseball. Um, and uh, I mean, I played a lot of baseball in the I mean, we played in the summer from probably 8.30 in the morning till about 5.30 in the afternoon, all day long. We just had one game after another. Uh, when we had kids, I, I had three boys, and they all played baseball. And so I, I became a coach for uh, 10 years in, in a park league, and, uh, and we had the best team. We won the championship, I think, almost every year. Here's why we, were, why we won. We won because we practiced beautifully. And we practiced constantly, and uh, it was um, so. It was actually the thing I loved the most. I, I really loved being a pastor, but if I wasn't going to be a pastor, I'd want to be a baseball coach. Um, <laughs> but we practiced wonderfully, and uh, so how many of you? Uh, how many of you have played baseball? But you all kind of understand baseball a little bit. Where's Golda? Is Golda here? Golda, do you understand baseball? Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> it's, it's not like cricket. I've been teaching her baseball these past few years. <laughs> but, but as a coach in baseball, I, I, would hit, I would hit literally hundreds of ground balls to the infielders and hundreds of fly balls to the outfield. And I would, I would, I would make them... Uh, but here, here's the thing... Uh, if you played baseball, every pitch that comes, you have got to think this. You've got to think, what will I do if the ball is hit to me? And uh, so I would, I would stop the team constantly and say, all right, if the ball's hit to you, the, this guy's on first and a guy on third, and the ball's, what are you going to do with it? I said, you've got to be thinking that every pitch. You've got to be ready. And, uh, and this is partly what, I, what this writer in Hebrews is talking about. There's a constant practice of understanding through the Word of God and through the um, through the stories of the uh, that we've got, we understand where 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 do you want me to be in this situation and uh, so so we really did um, it was absolutely a, 
a joyful thing for me to, to practice. Um, you know, everybody can hit, but very, very few of the teams were good fielders. We were the best, and um, wow. we were, actually. And, uh, but we were the best because we practiced constantly. And very simply, what I'm saying is that um, your, your commitment to, the, uh, to, the, to skill in the word of righteousness is crucial to your being perfected, crucial to your becoming a source of salvation to others. And uh, it's, it's actually growing in that and, uh, and by constant practice. When I became a Christian, I, I mean, I, I actually hated the Bible. I was, as an, I was an atheist. I hated, the, I didn't believe anything about the Bible. So, so when I, I learned that I had to read the Bible every day, I was, I was uh, chagrined. And, uh, and so it took me a while to learn, what's, why do I have to read this? Um, I have Jesus, isn't that enough? And, um, but at a certain point, something kicked in for me, and, uh, and I became absolutely consumed by the Word of God, and I, I, could, I couldn't get enough. And so I learned how to read the Scriptures, and, uh, and I learned how then to, to write. Someone said, why don't you write something about the Scriptures? Every chapter you read, write something down about it that of what it means. And so I did that for years and years and years. I have all these journals. I actually went back and read some of them. They're horrible. And uh, <laughs> some of them are heretical, actually. <laughs> but, I, um, but I learned how to ingest the Word of God. I learned how to eat the Word of God. I, I, was, I, had lear- I learned how to constantly practice. And uh, it's, um, it was utterly crucial for me to learn how to do that. It's crucial for you too, and uh, my guess is you have done this, and uh, I want to commend you for that. I know that you've done that also with, the, uh, with theology. How many of you have taken Ray Netherby's theology course? Yeah. How many take it five times? <laughs> um, so, so becoming skilled in the Word and skilled in understanding what the Word of God says and why it says it is crucial. But, but again, the, the point I'm getting after is that there is a, a way that we, um, that uh, the suffering we go through, even in the practice, like, for instance, when I, when I was practicing with my team, were they suffering? Of course they were. They were. I mean, I would, I would, I would say, okay, we're going we're gonna to do it again. They'd all go back to their position. Okay, so we've got to think this through. What happens if the ball is hit to the right, over the right fielder's head? What's the second baseman going to do? What's the shortstop going to do? And I literally, we would, we would actually run out there and do it over and over again. So that when it happened in a game, we just did it. it was, my greatest joy was to watch a ball hit over the right fielder's head and my second baseman and shortstop doing the right thing. Um, it's a joy to, to the father when he watches you actually do the right thing because you've practiced and, uh, and you have become a source for others. And, uh, you know, I... I've, I've kind of gone all over the place here. I'm, uh, anybody have any thoughts or questions? What do you mean by being a source for others? Okay, well, what do I mean by that? Let's talk about it. <laughs> I'm tired of talking. Sure. Sure. Anyone else? He's an ambassador. Yes, but though the church is a source of grace 
each other, individually we can do that as part of the church. Right. I, I became a source to my wife of, um, of grace into her life. There was a, I think it's in Ephesians 4, it says that husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. No man ever hates his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it. Remember when the Lord spoke that to me, he said, that's what I want you to do with your wife. I want you to nourish and cherish her. And, uh, <clears throat> but, I, but, it, but it came clear to me that, let me ask you this. This was helpful to me. When you nourish, when you nourish your body, how do you nourish and cherish your body? There's five main ways you do that. How do you, tell me about it. I'm not, you're not going to leave until you get all five ways here, so. Okay, number one, you feed your body, right? Huh? Number two, you rest your body. So you feed, you rest, what else? Exercise. You exercise, very good. You're, you're doing well so far. You might be able to leave some. You feed, you rest, you exercise. You what? Okay. No, Sydney, that's, that's wrong, Sydney. No, <laughs> you feed, you rest, you exercise, what else? You, you, you bathe, right? Yeah. That, you bathe? Basically. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 Okay, the point that I'm getting after is this. I had to learn how to do that spiritually with my wife. And that was, that was, a, that was the practice that I, I learned to do. So what did it mean for me to feed my wife? Mainly it meant words of encouragement. So, and and, and I, I would watch her just simply come alive when I would speak a word of encouragement. And uh, I was loving her by feeding her. Sometimes I would bring her to rest, simply just to rest, because she would, she would get uh, upset about something or other. I remember there was, there was one event. Her, her mother was coming, and, and we were lying in bed together, and, um, and she was tense. Can you, can you tell when your partner is tense in bed? Yep, she was tense. I said, what's the matter? She said, I have 16 things to do before my mother comes. And so I just said, okay, Tell me them. And so she, she named, I mean, she literally rattled off all 16 right in a row. And I said, and I took about seven of them off her plate. I said, I'll do this and this and this. And then one of them was, I have to, I have to, um, I have to, I have to harvest the peas from the garden. And I said, you know what, Sue? The peas can rot. Actually, I didn't say it that way. <laughs> but I did explain to her that the peas were not that crucial to be harvested. <laughs> and, uh, Actually, she would, she would, and she's so frugal that she would actually go get those peas, and, but I was not about to get those peas. Anyhow, all that to say <laughs> that I, I did actually kind of talk her off the ledge, and, um, but she was out of rest, and I brought her to, now, here, very simply is what I'm getting after is my constant practice in the Word of God made me a source of life to her, to feed her, to bring her to rest, to wash her from whatever, and... Uh, so um, I think that, um, that that becomes so crucial. I mean, even in this body, you know, when things break down and things do break down in this body, how do you relate to people? How, how do you become a source for others? Uh, you're going to learn the, how to do that through the suffering that you go through. Are we? We're done here, aren't we? Uh, you can go five more minutes. Okay. Um, I actually meant to do a whole set of different things here this morning. This has been fine, though. I just wanted to uh, talk to you.
like a spiritual grandfather. And uh, so I am 